Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the Freight Waves Freightcast where we drill deep into the food or the liquid, I guess you would say, that make America's trucks go, and that's oil and diesel. And we also drill deep with a guest from the broader world of trucking and transportation. This week, we've got Pat Jones, whose organization is made up of all those toll bridges, toll tunnels, and toll roads that truckers ride on and pay for every day. He's going to be with us in a few minutes. But first, as we usually do, on to oil and diesel. We've talked the last few weeks about how much diesel there is in the world. That hasn't changed. We're going to skip that discussion today, though, except to note that while those big inventories are keeping prices in check, they haven't been enough to keep prices from falling forever. And this past week, in a move that at times seemed like it was never going to happen, the weekly DOE retail diesel price did rise. It was up just four-tenths of a cent, but it did mark the first time since January 6th that the week-on-week price was higher. The DOE price, of course, is the basis for fuel surcharges, so I thought that was worth a small mention. But let's talk about the other part of the oil business where trucking is impacted. There are countless people and companies out there for whom drilling for oil is the major market they serve, and they have been just decimated. The North American rig count of drilling for oil, rigs drilling for oil, at the start of this year was at 670. In the most recent report, it was down to 237. Just think of all the trucks hauling frac sand, hauling water for fracking, flatbeds hauling equipment to the well site. So much of it shut down. So many jobs lost. But, you know, we may have hit bottom. S&P Global Platts had a story the other day written by a friend of mine, actually, a woman named Star Spencer, that at $30 WTI crude, some drilling actually starts to get profitable again. And we've been above $30 uh, WTI now for six or seven days, depending on when you're hearing this. That could reverse. It may not last, but U.S. output has dropped about 1.5 million barrels per day from its peak. There is no doubt that demand is picking up as the country starts to reopen. The cuts made by OPEC members were supposed to start kicking in this month, so it may be possible that the $30 level can hold. As the Platt story says, if crude stabilizes in the $30 per barrel range, Producers should be able to not only bring back selected wells they deem economic, but even drill and complete complete new ones for future production. There's also a quote in there that S&P Global Platts Analytics estimated that in the Delaware portion of the Permian Basin, which has been really one of the most productive areas of that giant uh, region in Texas and New Mexico, that in that region, 33% of new wells would be profitable to $30 barrel WTI, and that's about where we're at now. You know, if you also throw in the fact that natural gas seems to have bottomed, that could be a help too for the fracking industry that services the oil and gas patch. The price of natural gas at Henry Hub is still down near its lows. It's about $1.75 per thousand cubic feet as I, as I discussed this. But if you look out the curve, it's out to a little less than $3 per thousand cubic feet next January. U.S. natural gas output has been curtailed alongside crude output. A lot of natural gas is produced as a byproduct of oil output. The oil market was decent enough to spur a lot of drilling for a long time, and you got a lot of gas with it. So a lot of that gas was getting produced as a byproduct of oil when it was $50 a barrel. But now with oil output down, natural gas output is falling as well. And so that market, natural gas, clearly looks like it may be at a bottom. It may be that all those companies that were carrying equipment and supplies into the oil patch, all those trucking companies, may have seen their darkest days. It's going to be slow to rebound. This is a capital-intensive industry, and the flow of capital going into it 
is going to be strained no matter what. We're not going to that situation of a year ago, two years ago, whatever kind of calendar you want to look where they just banks just seem ready to throw more money into these companies. As long as their production was rising, they were happy. That's not going to happen again. There were just too many bankruptcies lying ahead, but the rocks are still going to be there. The hydrocarbons are going to be in those rocks. The knowledge of how to get those hydrocarbons out of there still exists. And the industry, once again, for a lot of it, doesn't seem to need enormous prices to get itself moving. So you can make an argument that it probably shouldn't be moving from the perspective of the oil and gas industry, but I'm going to look at it from the perspective of the trucking industry and say that here's hoping that a lot of those sideline trucks serving the oil patch and the gas patch are going to get a boost soon. We're going to switch direction now, as we usually do, about a few minutes into Drilling Deep, and we're going to talk about a part of the trucking market that for a few months now has been sheer heaven for drivers. We certainly aren't talking about rates. We're talking about the wide open nature of the road, where traffic jams seem to be a thing of the past as so many people work from home and just stay home in general. That is actually a real problem for Pat Jones. Pat is the executive director and CEO of the International Bridge, Tunnel, and Turnpike Association. That group last week held an online press event which featured the heads of some of the larger state agencies on this side of the business, all of which would be held together by the fact that you need to pay a toll to use their facilities. And some of the things that were said on, uh, in that, on that online press conference were pretty startling, particularly given the fact that while drivers might, lo- might like the open road right now, they, I'm sure they still don't like the poor state of a lot of them any more than they did before the pandemic. We're going to have, we're very happy to have Pat join us today on Drilling Deep. So, Pat, welcome. John, thanks for having me. All right. And let's talk a little bit first about your organization and membership. This is not just all highways. I'm, this is places where you got to use a toll, correct? Got to pay a toll. That's correct. IBTTA is the Worldwide Association for the Owners and Operators of Toll Facilities and the Businesses that Serve Them. We have, uh, there are 342 uh, distinct facilities at 129 agencies across the United States that run 6,300 miles of toll facilities and generate about $20 billion a year annually in toll revenue. And these would not be just governments. Some of the private operators of toll roads, I would imagine, would be in your organization as well. Yes, there are a handful of private toll operators in the organization, but the vast majority are public agencies. Do you find that the roads, or I won't just say roads because it's bridges and, 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 and tunnels as well as toll roads, do you think that your roads are generally in better condition than the roads um, – that are just funded, you know, like a straight free interstate highway that's funded almost exclusively by the Federal Highway Trust Fund tax? One of the things we take great pride in at IBTTA and in our members is that they have a steady revenue stream that supports them. And this allows them to conduct great maintenance and operations to uh, maintain great pavement to clear snow and snowstorms. So I would say that my members toll facilities, roads, bridges, and tunnels are some of the best maintained uh, facilities uh, in the country. Okay. Now, do you, are your facilities, do they get any kind of revenue stream coming out of the federal tax? Typically, they do not. Uh, Almost all of my members' toll facilities are entirely financed by their own toll revenues. 
Okay, now let's talk about those revenues and what the impact is going to be. I want to quote one number that was said at your briefing. It's pretty a pretty startling number. Uh, it was by the representative on that call from Pennsylvania. He said the capital budgets on the roads there, which is, I guess, like the Pennsylvania Turnpike, we're going to need to cut by about 25% this year. Now, that's a big number. What does that mean in terms of actual repairs? And what, what kind of things get prioritized when that happens? Yeah, typically what happens is they delay projects that while they are part of the work program, it isn't essential. You know, it's not going to impair the safety of the facility. So you're really, uh, you're s- simply delaying some of the capital projects that you otherwise would do uh, now. And this is a common strategy that the toll agencies across the country are using. They have some capital projects on the book, things that they're planning to do, and they've simply delayed them until the traffic returns and the revenue returns. Right. But it, wouldn't this be a good time to do this mechanically because there's such, such fewer traffic, such fewer number of cars and trucks on the road? Well, in fact, there are some toll facilities that actually are advancing some existing uh, big maintenance projects or some capital projects because traffic is lower and they don't have to do it in the middle of the night. They can actually get a lot of the work done during the daytime. So we like to say if you've seen one toll facility, you've seen one toll facility. Different facilities uh, and operators are using different strategies. Some are delaying those capital projects or or big maintenance projects, and others are are pursuing them because of the break in the traffic. Can you throw a few numbers out there for our audience as, as far as how big the drop you've seen is? Sure. Uh, one of our members who talked uh, during the virtual press briefing last week, the transportation corridor agencies, they reported a drop uh, in traffic and revenue of 70 to 80 percent. Uh, the State Road and Tollway Authority, which uh, operates facilities in Atlanta, Georgia, they are expecting a 20 per, 28% revenue loss in the fiscal year that ends June 30th. The E-470 Public Highway Authority out in uh, Aurora, Colorado, it's a beltway around Denver, they reported that their traffic was down 32% in March, and they have cut their general budget by 10% and their capital budget by 12% and are delaying projects a year or more. You mentioned the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It's cut its capital budget 25%. And in the case of New Jersey, the New New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway, they saw traffic drop 61% in the month of April. So lots of big drops in, in traffic and revenue and a consequent loss in revenue and delay in capital projects. I can understand where you can cut your capital budget. What are the kind of cuts you can make in an operating budget for a facility that be one of your members? Well, uh, it's possible to furlough some people. Uh, uh, you know, operating budget, you're, you're not going to cut it that much. Uh, some of the facilities operate um, – toll service uh, or uh, service plazas where you can get uh, fuel and uh, food and truckers can rest. They've cut back some of the services there. Uh, You can't go into a restaurant, et cetera, to sit down for a hot meal. You can have takeout service. So some of those uh, services are being uh, reduced. But but mostly what what we're seeing is 
not so much a reduction in, in operations as a uh, delay in capital projects or or major major uh, maintenance projects. Toll roads, the whole idea of public-private partnerships has been very much a buzzword for a while. It's not just a buzzword. There are real projects that have been built, um, toll-only facilities that are designed to raise revenue and, and take you know, the, only, be the only way to really finance some of these new roads by now. Um, that was a, a trend really in a lot of places. I think back some of the toll roads I've been on near Austin, near uh, south of Washington toward Richmond. Um, and what's the, the future of them? On the one hand, you've got a lot less traffic out there. There's talk about that drop in traffic being somewhat permanent as companies allow more and more of their workers to stay home. On the other hand, um, you are got, you're dealing with state governments that have very, very low levels of resources now because they've taken such a huge hit from this. Was this good for toll roads or bad for toll roads future? Well, the uh, getting to your point about public-private partnerships, this is a very common mechanism to build major infrastructure uh, across the country. It's used in the tolling industry. And really what is happening here is you are uh, transferring risk. You're making sure that the entity that's best able to manage the risk is the one that has the risk. So in the case of, let's say, uh, Let's take an example of the 495 express uh, express lanes in Northern Virginia. It's uh, 14 miles on the Capitol Beltway in which express lanes were built by a private consortium led by uh, Transurban. And what the the private partner brought to the table was uh, funding and the ability to collect tolls over uh, a number of years into the future. And so the private partner is bearing the traffic and revenue risk. This is a risk that the state of Virginia did not want to absorb. And so the state of Virginia got these uh, new express lanes, two lanes in each direction over a course of 14 miles, uh, without having to expend very much. And the private partner paid for this, including all, you know, many overpasses and, and interchanges and is collecting the revenue into the future. So I think public-private partnerships, and that's just one example of, of a type of public-private partnership. It's, a, uh, it's something here uh, to stay, and it happens not only in surface transportation, but also in uh, uh, rail and seaports and, and other kinds of uh, uh, transportation. Are some of these private partners in uh, some of these toll roads, are they facing some trouble with debt? Of course, they're very heavily debt financed. The debt's supposed to be paid back by the tolls. Uh, the tolls have plummeted right now. They've got debt payments they have to make. Are you seeing any concern out there about the stability of some of the third parties that are, that are in these uh, public-private partnerships? It isn't unusual, John, to see a uh, – uh, a concessionaire or the private partner and a public-private partner refinance its debt uh, or to have the, uh, the ownership of that uh, private partner uh, change hands. Uh, but in almost all cases, the facility is still there. It, uh, it exists uh, for the use of, of the state. So there isn't any harm that's coming to the people who ride on the roadways, the truckers, the freight carriers, 
or to the state. It's usually if if there's a financial difficulty in a in a public private partnership, the uh, the challenge is borne by the by the private operator. Right, and I guess the the key, the biggest example of that was the Indiana Toll Road, where the operators of that went bankrupt, I believe, and um, the roads were still there. And I guess the road was ultimately taken over by the state. Well, it w- was actually uh, taken over by a new concessionaire. So yes, the roads are still there; they continue to be operated, and uh, the the people of the state of Indiana and everybody who uses those facilities continues to get to use them. All right. So the second part of my question for the roads that do continue to need to be built, um, are public-private partnerships going to be an even bigger way to go because the states are going to be so strapped? Well, you know, there's lots of different ways to build toll facilities. You can use a public-private partnership or the state itself could create an entity such as uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission or the New Jersey Turnpike Authority and issue debt on its own behalf. So a public-private partnership is simply one of several ways that uh, could be used to build, finance, operate, maintain a, uh, a toll facility. Let me ask you, though, in your members, when they're looking out to the future, are they looking at – it's probably too early for them to have run the numbers, but are they looking at a future with less traffic because work from home has does not look like it's going to be a temporary thing? And a lot of people who might have been using those roads in the past are only going to be using them you know, one or two days a week as opposed to five, if at all? It's an interesting time that we're living in, John. It's hard to know at this point – uh, how fast the traffic will return and whether it will return to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, you know, we've had a big taste all across the country of people working from home, and probably many of those people will choose, or if they're given the opportunity, would choose to continue to work from home. But then you also have in uh, in many areas uh, people may be concerned about using public transportation and those that are traveling to work or to other places uh, choose not to get on the bus or the, or the rail car, but choose to get in their car or get into a carpool, which could actually. Let's point out that the number of cities where mass transit carries a significant number of people can be pretty much counted on two hands. Well, uh, there are, if you talk to the American Public Transportation Association, I think they have something like 1,500 members that are – there are bus systems in rural areas all across the country. I don't deny that uh, New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles are some of the big transit uh, – Chicago, big transit systems in the country. But there are small bus transit systems all over the country where people may choose uh, not immediately to get back on their buses and may get back in cars instead. Yeah, so the, the 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 impact on the road, right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. I can see where you could look at this from from both ways. You right. mentioned earlier that a lot of your maintenance is not necessarily a function or tied to the federal highway tax. Would you say you're not tied to it at all? And uh, but even if you, depending on your your dependency on it, it's something I'm sure you watch very closely. Any change of foot, or are we still stuck at thirteen point whatever since ad infinitum? Yeah, I would say that uh, there are some, uh, some of my members are uh, multimodal agencies. For instance, the 
the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey not only operates some toll bridges and tunnels, but also operates airports and uh, bus facilities and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but they're kind of an exception. The vast majority, I would say 90 plus percent, 90, 95 or more percent of toll facilities in the U.S. Uh, receive no federal or state funding. Uh, they derive all of their revenues from uh, tolls. Right, so it's a non-issue. That's why you're, you're driving down the highway and you're going through rutted roads and you're thinking, are they ever going to fix the roads, right? Then you hit a tunnel and it's one of yours and it's all nice, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to ask you one other question about the whole issue of uh, public-private partnerships. One of the arguments against them is that government can always borrow cheaper. And uh, with the collapse in interest rates, obviously there's a collapse in interest rate for the private sector as well. But with the collapse in interest rates, uh, for a, you know, a state with decent credit rating, that's going to be even really cheap. Is that going to be a hurdle for a public-private partnership to try to overcome? It, it's uh, in many cases, and as you say, it is cheaper for, or it can be cheaper for governments to borrow. But the uh, the challenge, I think, lies in the appetite of a state agency if it if it chooses to go with a public-private partnership. They may not have an appetite to take on the traffic and revenue risk that would be involved in them issuing the debt themselves. So right. I mean, beyond the interest rate itself, there's a lot of other factors that, that go into dis the decision whether to do it as a public agency or to have a, a concessionaire or public-private partnership. Right. And one of them is long-term sustainability because a state can borrow cheap to build the road, but they're going to have to pay out of their operating budget to keep it up. Whereas the, 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 the private partner, when they sign on, they are expected to be, take care of the maintenance for like 30 years. Isn't that the way these things are structured? That's correct. Uh, th there are different uh, lengths and terms of the concession agreements, but uh, 30 years is a, is a typical one. All right. I want to thank Pat Jones, the executive director and the CEO of the IBTTA, for joining us today, talking about bridges and tolls and turnpikes. Um, uh, thanks, Pat, for joining us. Come John, again, please. Thanks for having me. So you have been listening to, to Drilling Deep here on Freight Waves, or Freightcast. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts on Freight Waves. We are available on all the major platforms where you get your podcasts. We do hope you join us again for Drilling Deep. I'm John Kingston.